Welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. My name is Rob. And my name is Mark. And tonight, this is our first episode on merchandising, from the collector's perspective. Before we move on to our topic of the evening, a bit of news that just came out over the inter- internet, the interwebs, uh, in the last day or two was the announcement by the BBC that uh, they're uh, sticking uh, Capaldi and Coleman and Moffat into a rocket plane and jetting them around the world. Uh, is it like 12 interviews in, on how many continents? Seven, eight, nine? I'm not quite sure. Is it five in 12 days or something like that? That would be right. They're starting in Cardiff, as every right-thinking person should do. Absolutely. And ending in Brazil, as every right-thinking person should do. It's scheduled to finish before the bank holiday late in August, so people are tipping that the first episode goes out on August 23rd. Right. Uh, based on my very, very quick skim of uh, Twitter... And, of course, Twitter is, as Wikipedia, is a repository of all fair knowledge. So, And Mr Moffat won't be attending uh, the whole duration of the tour. He'll be ducking in and out, obviously still trying to finalise the script for the last episode, probably. Probably the last seven episodes or something like that. Yeah, exactly. We understand that uh, Capaldi and Coleman, at least, uh, will be coming to Australia. So that'll be, you know, I mean, uh, I'm sure there'll be a, a massive trek uh, to uh, Australia's uh, second city. Uh, in Sydney, and uh, it'll be interesting to see the re- well. I mean, the reception I'm sure will be rapturous, but I'll be interested to see what sort of format the um, it, it takes. Just lining the streets, watching Capaldi and Jenna walking down the aisle for like a premiere. Not particularly interested, but if it's a bit more of a QA event, maybe uh, some people are getting themselves excited, thinking it's going to be like a little convention and autographs. I don't think. It'll be like that, but we'll uh, we'll wait and see what happens. I suppose it will be a bit like the, the normal um, Q and A sessions that uh, that actors give when uh, when movies are, pre- are premiered. They they sort of wheel the journos in, they wheel the journos out, the journos ask all their silly questions, and the mm. the actors are on their own sufferance basically. But uh, yeah, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for some sort of fan interaction perhaps look i don't know we'll just see yeah it sounds like they're going to be streaming it because it says which fans everywhere will be able to enjoy access across social and digital platforms so maybe they'd be streaming it well then you wonder what the point is of 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 them jetting around the world why not just do it all in the studio in london somewhere and and stream that i mean other than exhausting your actors uh, and racking up frequent flyer points (laughs) I'm not really sure what the point is. If they're only going to be speaking with journalists, well, what is the point? Maybe they're just doing a little bit for the carbon footprint and the environment. Hopefully the BBC will be planting a forest somewhere yes. as recompense. Uh, and as any major forest. Uh, don't Look, Mark, don't remind me about the Matt Smith Christmas specials, all right? There's only one good one. The rest of them are rubbish. Okay, now let's move on to our main discussion. And what discussion is that? About merchandise, isn't it, Rob? As we said at the top of the episode, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, Doctor Who merchandise uh, over two episodes. Uh, it's a mega discussion. Uh, the first uh, episode uh, will feature Richard Nolan, who's the uh, XL Presidente of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria and uh, a keen collector in his own right. Uh, he'll be speaking about, uh, well, Doctor Who merchandise from the collector's perspective. 
And our next episode, uh, which will follow in a week or two, will be from the perspective of a shop owner, and we'll have a chat about him uh, at the end of this episode. Is there anything to say, Mark? There was a slight problem with Richard's audio track. I've uh, attempted to twerk it the best I can. Hopefully it will sound okay, but it shouldn't detract from your enjoyment of what I think is a pretty interesting conversation between the three of us. So take it away, Richard. Doctor Who merchandise. When did it kick off? A lot of the early merchandise is uh, it's it's pretty much all Dalek related. Um, the the '60s stuff. The first items uh, were mid '64, which is a Dalek book. The the story goes that uh, the BBC, um, after the success of, of the original Dalek story, started uh, being inundated with uh, requests for when were they coming back? Where could we buy one? Uh, my kids really like it and they want a toy one, um, etc. BBC, I think, being a little bit, how we put it, monolithic in those days, were very, very slow to respond to anything, and they actually wound up, I believe, farming a lot of the merchandising work out. But it took them probably a good six months um, to produce it, to, to license anything, and then the next probably 12 months saw a steady trickle of stuff, which became the flood in about 65. Can you mention some of the items that came out as part of that, that monsoon, that tidal wave of merchandise that hit in the mid-60s? Pretty much anything. Again, a lot of it was... Dalek base, so there's a lot of Dalek toys, that's everything from those little tiny Rollikins things up to um, big clockwork ones. Um, there were Dalek nursery toys, there are things like Dalek snow globes, Dalek lamps, Dalek mugs, Dalek plates. A lot of it's Dalek themed. There, there's some Doctor Who stuff, like they have the first annuals um, in 64 or 65, and we have, there's some Doctor Who activity books and those sort of things, which um, probably the first of the very loose association items. But, but it's nearly all Daleks. Just picking up something you said before, Richard, was it the BBC was responding to requests of viewers? Was there any in- inclination on the BBC's part to go down the merchandising route, or were they just simply responding to requests? Pretty much in the early days, particularly, it's 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 all about you approach them, not the other way around. Given the uh, the, the massive amount of of Dalek merchandise, I suppose Terry Nation was coining it in. Um, he was. There, there was a special deal struck between the BBC and Nation that that, uh, they each own roughly 50% of the rights initially, which is why, unlike a lot of the later monsters, something like, say, the Cybermen, which are are pretty much lock, stock and barrel owned by um, the estates now of uh, Kit Pedlin and Jerry Davis, Daleks are co-owned. Um, between the two. But uh, yes, Terry Nation did extremely well out of it. There was a Dalek play suit as well, wasn't there? There was a Dalek play suit. There were two Dalek play suits, uh, actually, if you, if you want to get specific. Yeah, there were. There was a, a good one and an even better one. There was the, the basic one had a was, ba- it was a skirt with a top on it and you put your hands through the um, through the holes and then you could sit there and pretend and creep around pretending you were a Dalek. It was like a, a vinyl skirt with a plastic top on it. And was that the one that was in Adventure in Space and Time? Yes, it's one of those ones. The other one's the, the Scorpion Automotive one, which is a much better suit, which had wheels and everything on it. But uh, they're the ones, there's only, I think only a handful of them known to exist because the, the, they're the ones the factory burnt down about two or three weeks before um, two or three weeks before they were about to ship them out for, for, uh, for Christmas. Lost opportunity there. Yeah. So Richard, the, obviously the emphasis was on you know the Daleks. Um, how much was there on the show itself? I mean, did, was Hartnell interested or involved to any great extent? Did he sort of you know lend his image to um, to, to merchandising, for, for instance? In the 60s, there's not a lot of Doctor Who stuff. It's nearly all Dalek stuff. I mean, there, there is Hartnell things. I mean, there's, um, there's, there's the annuals. There's, of course, the original comics. Um, I mean, there's a Dalek comic and a Doctor Who comic. There's the, the activity books I mentioned a minute or two ago. 
There's also things like the original, like the first three um, novels that they did, like Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the Daleks, uh, the, the Crusaders and the Zabi, which I guess perhaps ties back into your uh, um, Target episode from last week. And, and look, he seemed to be quite happy, I think, uh, unlike Troughton, who was absolutely averse to having his image plastered all over things. He's sort of known as somebody who was a bit paranoid about being typecast. So he, uh, there's very little Troughton era merchandise. There's sort of those wall Skyray cards in the, um, in the album that goes with them. There's a couple of annuals and a couple of other assorted things, but, but in the later 60s, there's very little merchandise at all. So in that early wave, uh, Richard, what was the quality like? Of the, of the product that was coming out in terms of the physical quality and also the quality in and of itself. Is it any good? I mean, a lot of them are still around. I mean, you can buy uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the 60s toys and that now, and they're quite you know, now quite sought after, of course. I mean, something that was worth, you know, 5p back in, in 1966 is now you know, a couple hundred dollars at least. But look, the toys were, I mean, they, they were cheap mass-produced items looking at the toys. A lot of the merchandise is stuff like you could stick a Doctor Who or a Dalek logo on um, existing products. So, like, there's a company that makes snow globes, so you could do a Dalek snow globe. There's a company who makes, like, kids' lamps, so you could do a Dalek lamp, that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, look, it's mass produced, like a lot of the stuff now is. And you look at a lot of the, the you know, little knick-knacky things, like the little, um, the little soap globe things um, and those little expanding um, bath towels and that, that that they market now and they're, they're just they're cheap mass-produced items they've got a logo stuff on them so how much of those early merchandising efforts managed to reach australian shores or were they pretty much centralized in the uk in terms of their availability as far as i'm aware look some of them certainly made their way out here i don't believe it was any great quantity uh, look a lot of the items like the original books the annuals those sort of things were certainly released here. I would imagine a lot of the toys perhaps didn't find their way out here. If you look at a lot of the collectors' things and that, it's more 70s merchandise that you tended to pick up out here. Um, because I think Australia was a very, very long way away uh, back in the 1960s. It still is today. What missed opportunities do you think there were in the 60s in terms of merchandising? In the, in the 1960s, probably not a lot. I mean, look, you got a lot of the general stuff that was around at the time. There were you know, there were Dalek games and Doctor Who games. There were toys. Um, there were you know water pistols and and little cat guns and that sort of stuff. The Chad Valley did a give a show projector. So it, it's probably consistent with a lot of the stuff that's around for other shows at the time. Moving forward a little bit, I remember being young, probably in the late seventies, um, and having a collection of Star Wars figures and really wishing there was an equivalent Doctor Who range. Um, which is something that, that, you know, really has only come about in the last probably, what, 10 years, if that. So that, I think, was one. I mean, look, I don't really ever remember the Doctor Who toys, the, the big Dennis Fisher Doctor Who toys and that being readily available out here. I've seen, uh, I do remember, I had a uh, Tom Baker one uh, when I was young, but uh, I never had any of the others. Certainly in the 60s, look, the, the merchandise then I, I think is largely consistent with what was being produced for other shows. And who, and who was it being aimed at? What, um, was it Kids. aimed exclusively at, at children? Not really. I, I guess, look, you would have you know, some of the more pricier items probably would be bought by well-meaning adults or rich uncles or whatever. Uh, I think uh, for children, but uh, no, it's, it's mainly at kids. If you look at it, it's things like um, there's the little cards in the um, the sweets, the cigarette sweet packets. It's lots of little toys. It's little knick-knacky type things. There's no, you don't really get the cult, big 
I like items specifically aimed at collectors until you get into the 1980s and then really into the 90s. So after the initial wave uh, subsides and, you know, Hartnell leaves and Troughton comes in, as you said, Troughton, not a big fan of being typecast, having his image plastered over everything. What really happened with merchandise for the rest of the 60s? Uh, well, it really, for the later 60s, there really isn't very much. He doesn't do a lot of promotion, or Troughton doesn't do a lot of promotion for the series. Um, so there's not really any opportunities there. Again, he's averse to having his image plastered all over things. So there's really nothing there. And I think once there's a, probably a bit of apathy as well, once the Dalek bubble had burst, you sort of get to, to 1960, Christmas 65 and across 66. Um, and that's that's really the, when the Dalek, uh, Dalek bubble bursts. Uh, and there probably is some apathy there too. That, you know, no one's really interested in merchandising anything to do with the show. There is a story that Peddler and, and Jerry Davis queried the BBC on, on several occasions as to why they weren't doing more to market the Cybermen. But uh, again, but it's in keeping with that BBC thing that, that you know you approach them, not the other way around. So the show um, loses uh, its uh, lead actor once again, and uh, John Pertwee bursts in in colour. Um, does does the advent of the seventies and John Pertwee uh, see an uplift, Richard, in terms of merchandise? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, yeah, Pertwee um, isn't averse to having his uh, is averse to having his image all over things, as long as he's paid for it. There is a story that when they started releasing the Target models, they were originally going to have because. Uh, early 70s is clearly when the, the Target models are relaunched, but uh, there is a, a story there that initially they were to have photo covers, but he, of course, was all too aware that using his photo meant he was entitled to a royalty payment. So, guess what? They now have artwork covers. Some of the Pertwee area had such great iconic emblems such as Bessie, the Humobile. There were no figures, there was no mass-produced toys reflecting that. Why do you think that was? I don't really think the toy industry in Britain probably was that big. I mean, I would see a lot of the toys were probably around the Matchbox, Corgi, those sort of things. Probably a bit unusual they didn't maybe do a, a like a Dinky uh, or a Corgi Bessie. Uh, maybe a bit unusual because um, a series like The Secret Service, that the Anderson one that, that virtually nobody saw with the, the, the crime-solving priest, that they, they released the car from that as a, um, as a figure but, or as a, as a toy. A lot of the Pertwee stuff, though, is it's still very much stuff aimed at, at kids. It's things like there's chocolate wrappers, there's the giveaway, the, the Weetabix, or sorry, Weetabix if you're English. There's not a lot. It's it's sort of a bit of a curve if you look across the 70s. It starts to pick up across the Pertwee era and then probably hits another peak sort of during Tom's time. Did they start doing jigsaw puzzles in the Pertwee era? They did. I mean, there are, there are 60s jigsaws. Okay. Um, that exist, and, and amongst the range of a lot of the other stuff that they did. But uh, what were they yeah, of? Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> mainly, mainly Daleks. They did. Um, there's a lot of different ones. I mean, look, there's actual, you know, proper wooden jigsaws and the, the like the three dimensional stand up jigsaws and that sort of thing produced as well. But Pertwee is you start to see yes, there are jigsaws. And there are a lot of the the first, the very first reference book on the show appears during Pertwee's time. Um, which is the original making of Doctor Who. I mean, look, there'd been the, the, the sort of faux ones done about the Daleks in the 60s, like that Daleks Out of Space book, which sort of treats the Daleks as if they're real. But, uh, yeah, you do get jigsaws. There's not a huge amount of Pertwee merchandise. As I said, it's sort of a bit of, a, a bit of an upward curve. 
um, really as you get along, and then you sort of get to Tom where it really starts to, to take off again. John Pertwee also recorded and released a single during his uh, reign as a Doctor, didn't he, Richard? He did. <laughs> Who is the Doctor? We used it as uh, a closing theme for our Pertwee podcast. How were sales for that uh, particular item, do you know? I don't think they were that high, um, although it was produced by Rupert Hine, um, who later went on to do... Misplaced Love. Yeah, and Underworld. I didn't know that. Excellent. I mean, the Doctor Who theme was released on single, I think, shortly after the show started. Were there any other examples to uh, cash in on the Doctor Who link? Oh, there are lots. Uh, I mean, there's uh, one of the early ones is uh, that that uh, infamous song, I'm Gonna Spend My Christmas with a Dalek. Who was that by? Uh, that was by a band called the Go-Go's. Not the... Not the Belinda Carlisle version. Um, there are other songs. I mean, there was Who's Doctor Who by Roberta Tovey. Then there's that really strange record, which is actually, um, it's about 21 minutes taken of The Chase, um, narrated to try and make another story, uh, which is a strange little single. It's just called The Daleks. That was a David Graham narrating that, wasn't it? Yeah. Because that was the only way for people to relive those adventures in those days. That's exactly right. And actually, it's the first one, really, I think, until you get to, um, there was that record of Genesis of the Daleks that they did in the 70s. And I, I think that's the only attempt they made until then. And does Fraser Hines uh, also sticks his oar into the water as well, doesn't he? He did. He had a song. Uh, we certainly had a song called Who's Doctor Who. Now, I think there was a second single there as well, which is Jamie's Away in His Time Machine. I know they're on, they were on one of the compilations albums, I believe, um, put out in, I think, late 90s. And how are the Heinz vocal stylings? Can he sing? Yeah, look, he can. I mean, look, he can sing better than I can. So, <laughs> so look, that's definitely a winner. He was written, actually, one of them was written by someone who just had big hits with Tom Jones and uh, just written, I think, Delilah. And uh, his record was about their only flop. How can you surpass the heights of Delilah, really? Very hard to, isn't it? Well, that's right. Yeah, it's quite strange that during the Pertwee time, the merchandise was very throwaway, wasn't it? It was either acquiring it as part of breakfast cereal or eating chocolate. It's nothing substantial to sort of hold on to apart from a couple of books here and there. And uh, there are things like jigsaws and that, but yeah. no, um, it, it's, I mean, there's, an, there's a colouring book, I think, as well. But uh, no, it is, it is a general upswing. Probably a lot of the Pertwee stuff tends to come more towards the end, probably the end of his run. Okay. Which leads us into Tom Baker's reign as the Doctor. And this is, of course, is when merchandise really started to take a giant upswing, didn't it? In the UK in particular, anyway. It did. I, I, in a lot of ways, the part where you sort of you know, laid the platform, I think, for Tom to, to then you know, expand the show even more. Um, and that's true with the merchandise as well. The, the Target books, it's probably the age where the Target books really start to take off and, and go monthly. Um, rather than just being, you know, one every couple of months. But you also start to see a lot of uh, a lot of merchandise. There's there's new Doctor Who toys. There's those um, the Mego or Dennis Fisher uh, toys. There's the Palatoy uh, talking Dalek and talking canine. There's um, a lot of everyday products too. You start to get back into that uh, everyday item where you can stick a logo on. Like there's there's Doctor Who Lectra set. There's um, there's Doctor Who. That's where those uh, infamous Doctor Who underpants come from. Yes. Um, they're about 1979 and 1980. With the Dennis Fisher dolls, was it true that they used the mould from the Gareth Hunt New Avengers model as the base for the Tom Baker doll? Was that right? I believe that's the case, yes. The, the legend goes that the mould uh, that they did for Tom was uh, was broken. And rather than pay to have the, the mould redone, because the thing with plastic moulds is they're very expensive to make. Um, they're, they're, if they're made, making the proper metal moulds, they're, they're several thousand pounds. Um, to make so rather than pay the money to make uh, the next one they, they just had this uh, 
head from a range that had never been released and yeah just whack he's got curly hair so we'll just whack that on but my friend had the tom baker doll in the uk and also the dematerializing tardis where he says he put the doll on the inside pressed the, the siren on the top and it spun around I was very envious of him. Those dolls these days, what's the availability like? Tom Baker is reasonably easy to come by, re relatively speaking. Probably some of the others are harder. Probably one of the harder ones is uh, is getting the Cyberman in good condition um, because that the, the suit, the, the silver they put on the, to use to coat the suit there um, tends to break up and they look really natty now. A lot of the, the surfaces come off the suit, so a lot of them tend to have repro suits. The Dalek's also fairly rare. Probably the Doctor and the, and the Giant Robot are probably the two easiest ones to come by. The Canine, you tend to find uh, they're quite often damaged, like the tails and the ears tend to come off them. And the record stops playing. There's two Canine toys. There's a Dennis Fisher one, uh, and then which is just a static toy, basically. Then there's the Palatoy one, which has the record in it, and you can turn the record over, and he says it's different Canine things. But um, there's the, the second set of phrases on the other side of the record. And did those Dennis Fisher dolls get over to Australia? I had the Tom Baker one. I don't recall ever seeing any of the others. I would imagine they must have done in small quantities, I think. I have seen them around here, and I, I know, uh, look, having you know, been around collector's fairs and that, they do tend to turn up here occasionally. Um, when I was doing a collector's fairs and that probably in the 80s and 90s. People here certainly must have had them, but I doubt it would have been in big quantities. And the prices, are they inflated? Sort of fairly reasonable, you think? Those toys, if they're in good nick, tend to go for a lot of money. Again, the, the Tom Baker one is probably the easiest one to get. Um, and they, you know, they, they go for less than some of the others. But uh, if you've got a Dalek or a, a Cyberman in immaculate condition or a box Leela, uh, they go for quite substantial amounts of money. I'm just curious, Richard. I mean, Pertwee was uh, very popular. You know, the viewing figures were fantastic and all that. And, and yet there was not much in the way of merchandise. And Tom Baker comes along and there's a step up in, in, in terms of the viewing figures. And then there's a decision to exploit that popularity. What was, do you know why there would have been a change? Uh, why the BBC decided to go down the route of, you know, merchandise and, and, and exploit his popularity in that way? Well, I think it's probably more, going back to that point, I doubt a lot of it would have been driven by the BBC. I, I would think it would be more a case, uh, maybe the producers of toys and merchandise and whatever were maybe a little slow uh, to catch on to this Doctor Who show that's suddenly been, uh, become popular again. Uh, I think because uh, the BBC don't really start actively marketing until, until you get much later. Uh, the 70s, it was still, you know, very much like a two-man operation. Uh, and, and it's a case, look, yes, they got a lot of licensing queries and yes, they would go through and do the appropriate thing, but it, it was people contacting them, uh, not the other way around. There is a bit of a, um, a, a lightness there of merchandise or, or a, you know, a, not a lot of merchandise there. And I suspect a lot of it is maybe just because people who make the stuff just haven't cottoned on to the fact that, you know, they're a couple of years behind what the kids are into. Plus, I, I guess at the time, look, you're still in an era where there's not a lot of stuff being merchandised. I mean, TV and movie, probably in the early 70s, TV and movie merchandising is, is a pretty novel thing. I mean, you get it for big stuff like the Daleks, like the Beatles, um, those sort of things. But probably um, in that sort of world pre-Star Wars, there's, um, you know, some of your biggest stuff really in, in terms of, uh, again, looking at toys. And your biggest toys probably at the time were, were superhero toys, really. The mar uh, marketing, I mean, there was like, uh, Mego did like the Star Trek ones and the Planet of the Apes ones. And the $6 million man as well. That's right. But uh, the bulk of their output is superhero toys. Um, and at that time, I, I think really, plus I guess there probably wasn't the, the big cult shows for kids maybe that demanded that sort of stuff. 
but uh, you know, I, I think once you sort of get into that post Star Wars world, um, and whatever else you can say about Star Wars, look, it really did change the way things were merchandised. You see a, a definite change in how and what's being produced. So, is there a qualitative and quantitative uh, change when Star Wars comes around, and you know everyone sees what can be achieved with merchandising on on that sort of you know uh, field? I guess look, there's still no uh, Doctor Who like. Doctor Who probably isn't big enough, maybe, to, to anyone to take a punt on doing an action figure range for at that point. I mean, as I said, there was the Mego toys, but really, they are just a case of sticking a different head, really, on, in a lot of cases. Um, I mean, like, Tom Baker really is just a different head on a standard body, and you, you just make, you know, specific clothes for him. Leela, you can really just put a different head on, you know, on an existing female body. Uh, I guess when you get into the aliens, you know, you get into the Dalek and the, the giant robot, um, you've actually got to make specific toys. But see, the Cyberman, if you actually remove the suit, it's just a standard Mego body that they've stuck a Cyberman's head on uh, with a nose <laughs> and, uh, and and then put a silver suit on. And what are the standout items of merchandising during the, sort of that, you know, the, the, the Tom Baker era, you know, into the, into the late 70s? What are the standout ones that, you know, you, you would, you would, if you had, you know, X amount of dollars, you would keep your eye out for? I would still like to have a full set of the, uh, of the 70s toys. Uh, I mean, the, the couple I had and I picked up over the years are now sadly gone, but I would very much like to pick up a set of the toys. A lot of the stuff probably more I got into was perhaps more in the 80s. Because uh, what you start to see, and this may be segueing a bit, but what you start to see is in the later 70s, early 80s, you start to see the merchandise perhaps trend upwards a bit in age. It starts to become more for older kids or teenagers. Um, so you start to see things like like in the early 80s, you start to get your first reference books. I mean, look, they're by Peter Haining, and you know now we think they're perhaps not that good, but at the time, those and things like the uh, Jean Lefissier, those uh, blue and red program guides that they did, uh, they, they really were Bibles on the series because there just wasn't anything else. Well, since you've mentioned, this, mentioned the 80s, we might as well, as you say, uh, move into that. Um, would the critical change be the appearance of John Nathan Turner? You said before that merchandisers would come to the, uh, to the BBC. Did, was it a case that J&T saw the commercial value on the show uh, and pushed things in that direction, or is it is it something else entirely? He certainly would have had a hand in it, I think. I mean, look, everybody, I think one of the things everyone agrees about with J&T is that he was much more into promoting and marketing and, you know, pushing the show um, and, and getting it out there into the public eye. Um, you know, he's very much, I mean, there's always that thing, you know, he's very much front of house. You know, it looks good. You can buy stuff, you know, you go out in the foyer and there's the program and the merchandise you can buy after you've seen the show, so to speak, to use a theatre metaphor. So, yeah, I think a lot of that would have been him. Plus, of, of course, one of the things is it's when the show starts to take off in America is, is probably around that transition period. So you start to see a lot of the American merchandise appear and they have to go through and license. There's a company called Spirit of Light who are licensed to do the American uh, merchandise and that's where if you remember the, the, the first sonic screwdriver took, which you would think uh, the sonic screwdriver would be a natural thing to make a toy of really when you when it starts coming into common use in the Pertwee era but it actually takes until uh, the American company produced one that, that you see one. And what was that made out of? Basically just a grey plastic tube and had a little sound chip in it. Yeah. Uh, now it was a little had a little uh, like a screw the cap off and you put the battery and there's a little sound uh, like a little board and a tiny little speaker. I mean it's, it's a push button it's not a, it doesn't have a pull down sleeve. 
but you, you push the button on it and, and it makes a chirping noise. What a shame about the sonic screwdriver though, because uh, I was using a tire pressure gauge as a sonic screwdriver. They should have mass marketed out of out of the US and into the into the UK and and Australia because it would have sold quite well, I think. Well, you would have thought it would be a natural uh, item that you could mass produce for kids to 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 play with, but I think sort of what they could now call role playing toys popping weren't that big back then. I, I don't think. But, uh, I mean, again, look, I mean, I remember having, you know, um, toy laser guns and that as a kid, but they weren't really marketed as anything until you get to, again, until you get to Star Wars um, and you, you know, you get the, the Star Wars, the, the Stormtrooper rifle and the hand solo pistol and whatever, that you actually start to get, you know, definable things that are actually linked to a show. I remember Spirit of Light did the Pertwee TARDIS key. Was that like a pewter? Yes, they, they did those. They did a range of badges. I mean, they did a lot of t-shirts and sweatshirts and coffee mugs and, and those sort of things. Um, but they did some quite nice stuff too. A lot of those little um, enamel badges. Um, if you remember those from the 80s, they, a lot of them came out of America. There's a British range as well. Also, in America, they produced the first Doctor Who role gaming. They did. The, the Doctor Who games, are like board games and that, had, had been around really since the 60s. There's, there's you know, games like Dodge of the Daleks and um, War of the Daleks. Um, and then you start to get the... Um, the there's the ones that... The, there's that Horrible Games Workshop game um, from 1980, uh, which is a very loosely based on the key to time. Um, and there's board games, but yeah, the first role-playing, of course, is really an American thing, uh, I guess, drawing from D&D or whatever, but uh, yeah, that's probably about 85, 86 that comes out, because the very first edition um, included Colin Baker, and then they suddenly discovered they didn't have a license for Colin, their license only took them up to Davison, um, so they actually had to just recall them all and reprint them. Can you say anything about the difference between the quality and the type of merchandise that the Americans were producing as compared to the British? Probably not in terms of quality. The, the thing with the American stuff is uh, it, it's really, uh, and that's probably the defining thing in the 1980s, is you start to get the, the fans producing stuff um, that you really don't see prior to that. I mean, a lot of the merchandise, sort of 60s, 70s, it's done by existing toy companies, you know, existing stationery companies or existing, you know, companies, crockery companies or whatever. Or publishing companies when you get into the 80s it's it's the age really when the fans start to produce stuff and and that's when you get you know like Andrew Skilleter um, sets up his company to, to sell and market his um, his artwork David Banks sets up his company you know he does that Cyberman book and then he does all those tapes you start to get you know the woman who um, who made Collins uh, cat badges. She got a license from the BBC to sell uh, to sell those, and that's probably where the Americans are. A lot of that's it's fan-based stuff um, being produced because you know anybody now has access. A lot of people now have access to screen printing, so of course you can just knock out T-shirts quite quickly. You can knock out sweatshirts. Um, you now start to get you know sewing machines that will actually do embroidery at home, so you you know you can churn out monogram polo shirts, those sort of things. So. Um, it is really, and that's probably the big thing with the 80s, is it, it is really the rise of the fan. And you see that go on into the 90s where you start to see the fans start to turn pro. So, you know, like the companies who do the frame, that does largely a fan publication, then wind up and become Telos Publisher. Guys who did the audio visuals, they really eventually, in a roundabout way, become big finish, um, that sort of thing. There's a lot of merchandise up to really the end of Davison season 22. Um, and then it just stops, really, um, because I think that the, the, when the show is rested uh, for that 18 months, it scares a lot of people away because no one really, I think, wants to commit to a licence when there's no real 
chance, you know, that there's a chance that the show may not come back um, or may only be short-lived if it did. So you get into the later 80s, there's very little trial and McCoy era merchandise as well. Um, probably the only big entrant during that period is, is Daypole. Um, jumping back two seconds, though, um, the annuals uh, that have been this stalwart thing, you know, there's, there's really since about 64 or 65, there, there's been an at Doctor Who annual pretty much every year. Um, again, when they hit the, the hiatus, um, it's, it's just they don't want to renegotiate. The first column one they do doesn't sell. Um, maybe they also twin dilemma, I don't know. But uh, the, the sort of the, the one they did for the season 22 year doesn't sell, and then they just decide, look, they're not going to continue with it. The annuals were had a very you know long long history and, and, and a great deal of you know output in terms of writing and 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 and, and crosswords and, and just those sort of those puzzles. I mean, the annual is a is something that's I don't really recall having a sort of a homegrown thing here in Australia. Is it more a British thing where TV shows would would pump out uh, annuals? You know, every year, well, obviously every year. Yeah, every year you used to get an annual, but it wasn't just TV shows. It was comics as well, like the Beano and the Dandy comics would always put out an annual every year for Christmas. In terms of merchandising in the eighties, I think Daypol was still around at that stage. So tell us a bit about Daypol. Daypol or Dapol, I think as they pronounce it, um, got their license uh, really around the twenty fifth anniversary. I believe they've been angling for a little while. I guess you could describe their range perhaps as eclectic might be a good way of putting it. They, they marketed themselves very much as we're a British company, you know, employing British workers and making toys in Britain. You know, yes, we know they may be a little bit crap, but, you know, your money is going to keep British workers employed and we're not sending the production offshore, etc. I mean, look, they, they've come under some criticism uh, probably for the quality of some of their uh, production. I mean, look, they're, they're a model railway. Uh, manufacturer. They used to make rolling stock and, and model kits and that for model railway enthusiasts. So of course they were uh, plastic producers um, and they had their own injection moulding facilities and whatever. So I guess in some ways producing toys on site was, was just a, a, a next step for them. Their range is a little, um, as I said, a little eclectic. There are some quite nice figures in there that there are some pretty ordinary ones as well. Talk about the nice ones to start with. The Daleks probably are the probably the, the, the high point I think of their range. Had, had Dapol been around probably when I was, you know, about 10 years younger, I probably would have lapped Dapol stuff up. The Daleks are probably some of the nicer ones. I mean, look, they then get into the thing where they're just going to produce endless colour color variations and that to, to, you know, keep you buying them. Their humanoid figures probably aren't as good. Some of them are better than others. Like the McCoy one's not bad, but the Tom Baker one's fairly ordinary because it really comes with no accessories. It's just him in a waistcoat. Really, there's no coat, no scarf. They can't afford to produce that sort of stuff because they, they set a price point. And the problem is because, you know, they have to pay British wages, obviously, they can't afford to do a lot of elaborate stuff. Like the Pertwee one is, is bloody horrible. <laughs> it really doesn't him no justice at all. There is a story that uh, when they were looking at licensing, they came out and they actually, someone came out and sat with Sophie for a couple of hours and like or an hour or so and took you know, took all her measurements and, and did her height and used the proper measuring calipers to get her dimensions of her face and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, just, just pumped out this figure of what really could be anybody. And if it didn't have, you know, patterns on the, on the jacket and a rucksack, you probably wouldn't know who it was. Unfortunately, they've been tarred with infamy in terms of their five-sided TARDIS console playset, their green canine and their two-armed Davros. That's right. I don't think uh, maybe they didn't look too closely at the reference material they were sent. Canine, they, they rectified that by releasing a, a grey one. Davros, they actually recalled them all, and, and really, rather than just do anything, all they did was just hack the arm off 
um, sort of at the elbow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one you have devils with one arm, and this other arm that moves and everything, and it just ends in a stump. Was that the Revelation playset? Was it? Yeah, they, they probably quality probably wasn't their main thing. And then later on, because they've got a lot of criticism over the years of, you know, about the toys really aren't that good, and you know the Star Wars figures and whatever I had, you know, fifteen years ago were a lot better than this. They then decide that they're going to do these really elaborate sculpts and, and they're going to make them really nice but again the cost thing comes in and they can't afford to articulate so the last two figures they do basically these very nice like five inch statues they do Troughton and uh and a cyberman they look a lot better than their earlier toys um, the cyberman particularly is quite nice but yeah they're, they're just these sort of five inch statues so in terms of their resale value and their availability and their collectability are people seeking them out and paying obscene amounts of money for them on ebay or? i don't know so much about now they were they probably had their license uh i don't know it was revoked i think it was more they were told that, that, that it wouldn't be renewed in, around uh, the start of uh, the 2000s and in the aftermath of that there was a bit of a rush on their stuff and some of it was changing some if you had some of the play sets and that they, they were going for quite silly amounts but uh i i think Sanity's probably prevailed now. I, I don't think the Dapol stuff's really held its value, no. I actually went to the Dapol exhibition and uh, factory in North Wales when I went back to the homeland a couple of times. Did you go on one of the days when they had Tom or Sophie or somebody there? Or No, there's nobody there apart from Bessie was parked out the front, but they had like a little uh, exhibition downstairs and then you go upstairs and you have a look around. But I do remember they definitely had a, a gift shop and you used to be able to buy, obviously, the, the models there, but they actually had a fairly good range of books. I remember replacing some of the, the, the Target novelizations that I had. I bought them from there, and a couple of other fan books and, and magazines as well. So they had a very good shop there, and I remember the guy who owned it used to dress up in the Colin Baker costume, and my uncle said he used to see him down the pub dressed as Colin Baker a couple of times. <laughs> so... The factory moved premises. I think they finally wound up. It was in uh, Hangochlem. Is that how you pronounce it? No, it's actually Hangochlem. My relatives live 10 minutes away from there, so hello if you're listening. <laughs> So, Richard, um, the show ends with a whimper and definitely not a bang in 1989, and so does the merchandising. Would that be a, a fair summation? To a point. I, look, there really hadn't been a lot, as I said, across the um, McCoy era. Um, one thing you do start to get, though, is it's really when... The 90s really is when the fans and, and the fans becoming professionals start to take over. You know, you, you have your range of new adventures is released fairly quickly after the show ends. Uh, you know, they sort of uh, get their license quite quickly um, and start producing their books. Uh, and you start to see a lot of the... It's, it's the era probably when a lot of the really heavy research volumes start to appear. Uh, like, for example, um, uh, How Stammers and Walker release the 60s uh, in the early 90s, which really sets the tone probably for a lot of the books that come later. And one thing in there you start to see is it, it's probably the era when fans start to write the kind of books they want to read, which of course appeals to other fans. I mean, I think something like, you know, something like Richard Molesworth wiped. I, I couldn't see that being produced at any other point in the show's history. I, you know, no one would have taken a punt on that book in the 1980s. And I don't actually think that the, the availability of material to research that would have been available to anybody at that point. It's not really until you get into the 90s, you know, the, the BBC don't care and they allow people into their archives and that, that, that um, you start to get the really detailed works produced. The early 90s is, uh, it's a bit of a lean time. I mean, there's, there's that whole, that it picks up 
uh, really, I guess when the, the people realise that the 30th anniversary is about to come and there's a lot of licences issued uh, for that and there's a lot of quick cash-in stuff, um, you know, there's a lot of like cheap jigsaws and badges and coffee mugs and those sort of things produced and you start to get probably some of the bigger licences like um, the, the, the trading card licence um, goes to a company, an American company called Cornerstone um, who have quite a long and, and somewhat checkered history perhaps with it. Eventually, they eventually get swallowed by the KISS, uh, they get the KISS licence uh, for KISS cards much later and that, that effectively takes over their entire company. But um, they do put out four sets of Doctor Who cards in the intervening time. Just before the television movie airs in the UK, uh, BBC Books takes over the Virgin Books licence. Do you think on the BBC's part there was an expectation that the television movie was going to be the next big thing and they started clawing back all the licences from uh, existing holders? I suspect that was possibly part of it. I, I know there was a bit of a, a thing at the time that, um, that a lot of the Virgin people and the writers there I think felt that you know the BBC had seen how well Virgin was doing with it. Um, and these books were, you know, selling quite well, and some of them were even going into reprints, you know, and were, were quite popular books. And thought, well, really, this is something we should be doing ourselves. Um, and I guess there's probably an argument that, that maybe the telling movie and the, the chance that look, it may go into a something more than just a one-off maybe gave them the impetus they need, perhaps to start looking at revisiting some of those licenses. Because when the TV movie came out, there was a script book which really violates the Trade Practices Act, doesn't it? Really, with the word script. Uh, there's the novel, obviously. There was also Paul McGann reading novelization of the book as well. I think the year afterwards. So there was a little bit of an upturn, but once the realization was that the show wasn't come back, I think it was a quite a fallow time after that, wasn't it? The later '90s probably are a bit. I mean, you sort of have this big explosion of merchandise probably around sort of 92, 93, 94, um, and then you get another bit of a spike, perhaps as you come into the um, into the telling movie. But uh, after that, it, it does start to, I mean, a lot of the companies like, um, I mentioned Cornerstone, they did the cards, and they, they were sort of a store for a number of years. They were around for, you know, three or four years. Their, their license expires. The guy who was doing the Judy T-shirts, just, just thinking of stuff. We were handling in the club at the time. Um, the guy who did the Judy T-shirts, he moved on and started doing other things. Um, there was that um, terrible card game that they did and they also sort of gave up and moved on. And you do, you tend to find in the later 90s there's not a lot to replace them. So just, Richard, just catching on something that you said earlier, given the show was off the air, um, would you say in terms of the books um, that, you know, with the show off the air, there was a, a greater interest in, you know, producing new Doctor Who via the fiction and given that the show was off the air, it gave a chance for you know those fan historians to look back. Would that be a, and that, which obviously led to all those reference books. So would that be a fair summation of the sort of the impulse of fans at that point? I think so. I mean, the nineties really is is when the, the fans probably start you know taking the show in, in their own direction. I mean, you, you have uh, the new adventures later, the the missing adventures, and then the BBC take their range over. You, you also have things like that's really when. Um, things like the, the fan films, like the BBV films, you know, they, they can't really make Doctor Who, so they make uh, sort of something that, that's an approximation thereof, if you remember their Stranger series. Plus you have, uh, later in the 90s, you have, they start to do things like they realise um, that you can use things like the Sontarans and the Zygons, um, and indeed even uh, something like the Cybermen, you only have to pay a licence to the creators of the... Um, to the creators of the monsters, if you just use them and change the design a little bit, you don't have to pay the BBC anything. They were quite popular during the 90s. I remember some of the Stranger tapes having local releases here. The Stranger was quite big because, I, again, I, I think it came at a time 
the show, obviously by that point, people knew the show wasn't coming back. And, uh, you know, for a who-starved audience, quite good. I mean, they were really sort of surreal enough that, that they could be a... Um, if you remember, the, the, like, the early Stranger Ones, they were quite surreal that they could probably be a Doctor Who episode um, with a few tweaks, you know. And, of course, they've got Colin Baker and Nicola as the Stranger and his companion, Miss Brown. And, and I guess you could, if you wanted to, you know, stretch that suspension of disbelief a bit, you know, it's possibly in that period, sort of post um, uh, post twin dilemma, pre pre attack of the Cybermen, You know, where he wants to go and live as a hermit, and that you know, because you just see him as this sort of scruffy-looking individual, and this you know, um, and this young lady with him, and it looks like the Doctor and Nicholas. So it's interesting that the BBC didn't clamp down on that Stranger series like it did with the BBV audio series the the professor and ace there are are ways of skirting around paying license fees and things to people if you're careful so i guess if you call them if you call them the professor and dorothy uh, that's kind of using names that were used in the series i mean she calls him the professor and and dorothy is is her real name so there's probably more of a link there than if you just call them the stranger and 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 miss brown perhaps the bbc probably were never particularly big. People who did the audio visuals, they didn't do a lot of promotion for them, but I mean, they used Dalek, Cybermen, etc., just willy-nilly. Um, they called their character the Doctor, he travels in the TARDIS, you know, and, and, and they, I don't think, got a knock on the door from anybody. One of my areas of interest is um, the little, is metal miniatures, and there are companies today making what are essentially Doctor Who miniatures of the Doctor's companions it's very hard to make a Dalek and pass it off as something else but you can sort of make a bloke in a leather jacket and and pants calling Dr Malcolm Eccles cake now everybody knows that's a Christopher Eccleston figure but of course you tweak it just enough that it doesn't look exactly like him you call it something different and you can probably you know probably get away with it yeah they do I, I own several and they're quite popular figures because there, there are people out there who you know are people who are into miniatures gaming want current era figures and it's probably one of my uh, great regrets that, that nobody's picked up the new series miniatures license but yeah they're, they're quite popular little figures so we move out of the 90s and into the 2000s and what does the first half of the uh, first decade of the 21st century look like richard in terms of merchandising you have a bit of a spike probably in the lead up to the 40th anniversary i mean that's sort of the period before it became apparent that i mean when did they announce it september september 2003 i think it was there was uh there was a few of the merchandise licenses um again were either cancelled or or not renewed um, in early 2003, which sort of did prompt some speculation uh, from a few people um, that, oh, well, that sort of tends to mean maybe they're going to do something with it because I don't think anybody, you know, really nobody knew it was coming back until it was announced. I mean, you have all the stuff with, you know, um, the, the uh, Richard E. Grant Doctor, you know, they were making that as, as new Doctor Who because, you know, even within the BBC, they didn't know that it was coming back. So you, you go into a period where there is some merchandise around. Then you sort of have the announcement that there's a new series. Um, and once the new series hits, well then, then you just, the floodgates then open and, and there is a, a, again a, another tsunami of, of merchandise, you know, you have. And it's stuff that, you know, 25 or 30 years ago we'd have killed for it. stuff, you know, there's toys, there's books, um, there's games, there's all sorts of ephemera. Anything you can imagine, probably you can buy. You know, and as uh, thinking back to being an eight or nine year old kid, you know, stuff I would have absolutely fallen over myself to get my hands on. 
Is it merchandise that's coming to the BBC like it was in the 60s and 70s, uh, or is it the BBC out there? No, the BBC are out, out big and pushing it. You know, you, you sort of have that big announcement that, you know, it's it's we're taking this, you know, this is going to be a big series. We've put a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort into it. You know, we've hired a, a, a quality actor. You know, we've got Christopher Eccleston, um, who's, you know, got a name um, to be our doctor. It's not someone you've never heard of. We've got a big name, and this is going to be big, and, you know, we want you to get on board. And where does that leave fans of the classic series in terms of merchandising at that point? It was, did that fall away, or what, what? I mean, what really happened for fans of the classic series? What happens across probably the nineties is that the merchandise starts to get not smaller, but it starts to be more targeted items, and, and it's a lot of it is done specifically as collectibles. You know, it's sold in in specialty shops. It's a lot of stuff that, that fans, you know, there's things like that 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 chess set, there's pewter figures. Um, there's little statuettes. There's it's it's collectible stuff, and classic series merchandise really has always stayed there. But it's really stayed in that sort of collectibles niche to a point. I mean that that's a generalisation. Whereas you see the new series stuff has largely been the mass market stuff. You know stuff a lot of the ephemera, and that is around the new series and not so much around the classic series. I would imagine that uh, for for the, the new series, when the licenses were being you know flogged off, it was uh, they were quite pricey. Would you would you imagine? Very much so. Um, Doctor Who is a big license. There, there's a story. Um, there's a, a mob called Crooked Dice who do a, an unofficial Doctor Who game that they distribute free because they can't obviously can't charge for it. Um, they inquired about the license and, and found that it was about as much as a, a moderately priced flat to buy it. Whereas about 10 years earlier, when Harlequin Miniatures had the Metal Miniatures license, they picked it up for next to nothing, allegedly. Because at that, at that time, the, the Doctor Who license really wasn't worth very much at all. And in the afterglow of the 50th anniversary, where, where stands um, merchandising for Doctor Who now? Um, it's, it's interesting. I suspect... I don't know that it's a case that the bubbles burst, but... Um, there were a few things about the 50th that intrigued me, one of which was that there were no training cards or anything like that released. I would have thought that would have been a natural for, um, for, for somebody to grab the licence for, you know, put out a couple of 50th anniversary card sets. That doesn't seem to have happened. I, I think it'll probably downscale a bit. You're seeing, for example, like a company now who make the toys character options have shunted all the new series figures um, down from a five inch into a three and a half inch or three point seven five inch scale, which is sort of Star Wars figure scale, and that's primarily for cost reasons because that they their license you know requires them to, and to justify the license they need to put out a certain amount of product every year, but um, the the sort of production to, to profit ratio has dropped quite significantly, so they've got to find ways to cheapen their cost um, and scaling down. Whereas their classic series range, uh, when they do them, it has stayed at five inch and will be staying at five inch. Um, because they can charge a premium price for those because they know the older cashed up fanboys, you know, that, that, that's what they want. I know what, what you're saying in terms of they've got to try and justify their, their license. Well, some of the figures they've done, like Laszlo from the Dalek two-parter from season three. Now, to me, and they're not very big sellers. And in fact, I know they're not very big sellers because a lot of shops around Melbourne are trying to flog them off at uh, 2 or $3 and they still can't shift them. You find that probably with a lot of toy ranges. You know, you tended to find, again, going back to the, to the Star Wars figures, you know, um, being here in Australia, they didn't get new waves all the time and you'd go in looking for Han Solo and all you could find was a pig full of Princess Leia and Sand People figures um, back in the old days and, and and look the doctor who ones are the same um you have 
the ones that, that you know sell really quickly because they do a, a variant on the Doctor or they do one of the cool monsters. But because, of course, their licence probably requires them to do the rest of the stuff that's in the season, they have to produce sort of the uncool figures as well. And, of course, they there is a bit of a thing with toys is the way you pack the case is all important like if you have a wave of six figures if you have 12 in a case you maybe put one of a couple of the really cool figures and two or three of the other figures but of course you make the, the distributors buy more cases which of course gets your throughput going but yes you always tend to have in the toy ranges there's always uh, there's always toys that no one wants <laughs> Unquestionably, it seems to me that the, the biggest selling and the most popular uh, items of merchandising since the new series came back have, have been uh, the Sonic Screwdriver and, as Mark and yourself have talked about, the character options, toys or dolls or figures. What do you think fans um, have purchased those in such va- such vast quantities? Where, where does the appeal lie in something like those two items? I think, well, looking at the, the, at the action figures, I think certainly for older fans like, like myself... The classic figures have a big appeal because they're the toys you wanted 30 years ago. And that's really, you know, and plus they look cool. I mean, look, I, I haven't bought heaps and heaps of them, but, you know, it, it is quite nice to have a little row of 11, you know, 11 doctors standing across your shelf. But part of it is most definitely, I think, you know, these are cool toys and I would have loved to have had these as a kid. And that drives a lot of the collectibles. I mean, you know, people pay a large amount of money uh, for things like the Weetabix cars from the 70s. Um, and primarily it's because they want the things they had when they were kids. Um, you know, I had a Weetabix collection when I was a kid. JR, the Box Podcast, talks about, you know, he's just finished his Weetabix collection. He's just brought it to mind, you know, and that's because he had them as a kid and he wants them again now. The Sonic Screwdriver toys, it's a toy you would have liked to have had as a kid. Probably for kids now, looking at the new series stuff, most popular TV series now get toy ranges, and that's from everything, you know, from Peppa Pig, Optimus, um, you know, Ben 10... Star Wars still even, whatever you're into gets a toy range. So for Doctor Who, for, for a kid's toy range really is just a, is just something you do now, um, if it's popular. And of course the kids, you know, much as I guess we did years ago, the kids want to recreate scenes from their favourite show. So Richard, if you were in charge of, um, say, merchandising now today, where, where do you see the market going in the next few years? And what, what sort of items would you like to see, you know, in the next, say, five to ten years, assuming the show continues on much as it, as it has been? Probably a bit of a personal wish list. I mean, look, my main areas of interest and stuff I've probably been big on collecting have been things like the model kits, the, the metal miniatures, the trading cards, those sort of things. I would really like to see those for the new series. There was actually a, a, an aborted uh, new series set uh, for trading card sets so to be done by a company called Inkworks, but it never got past the promo stage. I'd be most interested in things like that. One of the, the things probably that, that the big one that's coming out at the moment is uh, you've moved into the age where a lot of people are doing the autobiography um, or biographies you know, over the last year. You know, you've had a lot of the actors on the show have released their autobiographies. Um, you know, you've had the J&T book. You've had the book about Terry Nation. You've had, you know, reprints of the old Pertwee and, and um, William Hartnell books. I, I'd like more reference books. There's always space on my shelf for a good reference book. In terms of where it's going to go... It's. I think there has been a bit of a cool-off in the last year or so, as I was alluding to earlier around the 50th anniversary. And I suspect there will perhaps be a bit of a, a reset period or a, a rebuilding period, perhaps, um, over the next couple of years. Um, as you, know, you start to see, Capaldi probably means different things to, to different people. So, and, and that will probably have an impact on the merchandise, because if, 
you know, you, you start to see that the, the kids, um, you know, it starts to lose a bit of cred with the kids, you'll uh, maybe you'll see that reflected in the merchandise, I think. Are you firmly of the belief then that the, the show's popularity and as a driver of sales is, is more the lead actor, the saleability of the lead actor than the show itself? I don't think having David Tennant as an immensely popular doctor hurts sales any, shall we say. David Tennant, you know, was an immensely popular uh, in the role. I mean, look, you know, I know when we watched it, and I remember talking to you two about, you know, how good we thought Eccleston was, but I mean, the popularity just goes boom when Tennant hits. You know, and it picks up this whole legion of new fans. But, I mean, look, I think, and going maybe a little bit more big picture, Doctor Who's sort of now been in production for nearly 10 years, and I, I do think there is probably going to be a point where the BBC will either rest it for a couple of years, you know, to, to create that demand and then bring it back. Uh, look, I mean, I don't think they'll ever walk away from it because it's a money spin-up, but, um, and, and look, it's an immensely popular series, but I do suspect there will be a point where they, you know, will either, as I said, rest it for a year or two or do another year where there's maybe just a couple of specials. Um, or something, and, and I think that will probably impact on the merchandise as well. I think I just heard Ian Levine die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you can always make the argument that there's a point, Doctor Who you know, costs a lot of money to do, and I know there's been the stories about they've had less budget this year and whatever, and there's still that unresolved question about, uh, you know, is this year 13 episodes plus a Christmas special, or is it 12 plus a Christmas special to sort of get around that 13 episodes thing? And there probably is going to be a point where the BBC, you know, want to put their resources into something else. I suspect there will be a case, Doctor Who, there will be a point in the probably not too distant future where, where Doctor Who will be rested for a year or two. But the lure of the money will bring the show back? Oh, I think the lure of the fan, the popularity, uh, you know, the, the clamour of the fans, I think, will bring it back. I mean, it, 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 look, it will create a need or a demand for it. I suspect they will do something like that soon. Was there any homegrown merchandise in Australia, Richard? If so, can you remember what the quality was like? There are local items. I mean, one of the ones uh, I'm sure you remember is the uh, is the good old show bag uh, from the late 70s. What was in that show bag? Yeah, well, for anyone who doesn't know what a show bag is, it's um, it's like a, a sample bag, I guess you'd call it, like you'd get it at a, at a fair. The, the shows are the agricultural shows here, but there's a carnival aspect, aspect to them as well. Um, and they produce these sort of uh, sample bags full of little knickknacks and things that, that uh, you can buy and, and the kids can take home. The Doctor Who one came in a printed plastic bag and it had um, it had a, an invisible ink set, um, which was two little bottles of liquid. There was a, a game which uh, actually was recycled off the back of one of the Weetabix boxes. There was a badge, and the badges are quite interesting because what they were is, you might remember the, the Doctor Who, the Tom Baker birthday cards where he's like written in chalk on the front of the TARDIS like today you are three, today you are four, today you are five. Hmm. Um, there was a large number of those left unsold. So what they did was they just cut a circle um, around Tom Baker's face on them and stuck them on a plastic back. Um, and that became the badge in the show bag. There, there was also a, um, a press out like a TARDIS um, that you could make. It was just like a, a, a basically a printed blue box that you could make and put together. And there was um, there was a couple other things in there as well. That a lot of it was was ephemeral rubbish, but um, and and very few people kept them. But if you have a complete one, they're actually now worth a surprisingly large amount of money. And and it's primarily because the UK collectors. There's nothing like that over there in, in UK fandom. But that was only local to the Melbourne show here, wasn't it? In the late 70s, was it, Richard? The 79 through to the early 80s, I 
got one at the Melbourne show in the late 70s and got another one at the Brisbane show in the early 80s. So look, I think they were around, and they, they were certainly sold at the, at the Easter show in Sydney. So look, they, they were a, a, an Australian thing, but you know, a lot of them, look, they, they wouldn't have survived you know, more than a couple of weeks probably after the, you know, after the kids got them home. Um, and, and so having a complete one, they're worth quite a bit. And, and around the same time, a lot of it was Tom Baker. Tom came to Australia in the, uh, in the late 70s um, and did a series of promotional appearances. That's when he filmed, uh, for Australians, that's when he filmed like the Keep Australia Beautiful ads. There was also a Doctor Who icy pole. There was. Uh, or an ice cream, actually, because uh, an icy pole is frozen water, which I think the British call an ice lolly. Ice lolly, that's right. Um, well, this is actually a proper, there was a proper Doctor Who ice cream. And again, if you've got a sort of the wrapper um, and the box from that, they're, they're worth, again, quite a bit because they're in the, you know, a British collector wouldn't have access to. Um, so they pay quite a bit for them. So was there two versions of the ice lolly? Because I do remember one in about 81 or 82. It was marketed with the Mr. Men ice lollies at the same time. I, I think it's the same one. It was a... Um, this is probably getting really detailed, but it was a vanilla... It was a vanilla chocolate chip ice cream with a chocolate coating on the bottom half, I think, from memory. And actually, there were little stencils inside the box. There was a series of little collectible stencils. Um, and they're now worth quite a bit as well, because again, they're something, you know, the kids at the time probably... I mean, I had them at the time, but um, they're long gone. So uh, there were those. And then th th there's been the odd thing released here. I mean, look, we had Australian editions of things like the Technical Manual, and that 20th Anniversary magazine, they were published uh, sort of through the ABC. And then you get into you get into the 90s, and there was that range of uh, the mob called Central Pay did uh, the Doctor Who, uh, Doctor Who clothing range. Um, which was that the thing, there was a waistcoat and a kimono. It was a sort of a, a sateen material. Um, with It had a, like a Doctor Who logo and a Dalek and a Cyberman. Richard, did you say a, a kimono? Yes. As in a short robe? As in Doctor Who fans wearing silky short robes? Is Ooh, that correct? Yes. Were they smoking a pipe at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a, a sort of a waistcoat which i actually wore to your engagement if you remember mark i do actually yes well thank god it was the waistcoat and not the kimono is all i can say <laughs> they actually did a there was a pair of like boxer shorts and the boxer shorts and the t-shirt made the doctor who pajamas and then there was a kimono which they they sort of marketed as a robe and then uh there was socks as well i think and again they now they were quite rare because it was a one-off thing here. And again, I believe that the, the UK collectors actually paid quite a bit for them. And you come forward to now, there's a, a company here um, who are making a, a set of Weeping Angel bookends that, that are licensed through just one of the, the specialist retailers here, Mobile Pop Culture. Uh, and and they're, they're in Australian only. Um, there was the statues that they did around the, the 40th anniversary. Um, there was a series of um, companies here that they were rather um, interesting. Uh, representations perhaps of uh, Daleks inside of me, but quite popular. Has eBay actually artificially increased the prices of merchandise? So it's more expensive to acquire now that the new series is back? To be honest, there's probably an argument that eBay has diminished the prices, if anything, because what you tended to find years ago when you were relying on specialist dealers, it wasn't sort of like you could run around and find another one of, of that rare uh, 70s Dalek or whatever it was you were looking for. I mean, look, the rare stuff still commands high prices, but using, say, uh, something like the, the Dapol uh, figures as an example, the, the, when they were going for large amounts of money, the first one on eBay, you know, might go for £250, and then everybody who's got one thinks, oh, I should sell that. 
and of course another 20 suddenly appear on eBay and you just watch the price go down as, as you know the, the market's flooded and I've, eBay unfortunately probably um, allows for that um, it's not really a very good price guide I don't think because plus of course then you start to get into things like you know people in the UK won't buy something from Australia because they suddenly realize how horrendously expensive it is to get over here and vice versa so there's that element to it as well um, and now look, you really only have to go on eBay and, and sit there and just, if you just type in Doctor Who and it, you just look at just pages and pages and pages of stuff that just doesn't sell. You know, if it's if it has a value, look, some of the rare stuff, if it appears on there, will sell and it will generally go for quite a good price. But a lot of the generic mass marketed stuff that everybody's got, you know, it, it just sits there and sits there and sits there. You know, so in some ways, eBay's a, a bit of a, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a downer, really. <laughs> Richard, uh, thanks so much for being on this uh, merchandise episode of 42 to Doomsday. Uh, we've enjoyed having you on and I hope you've enjoyed being on. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Hopefully entertaining. All right, so lettuce. You've got mail. So, Mark, I think you should read the first one. We had another comment put on our underutilised blog, Rob, from uh, Doc Hoom, who says, I was a little confused by the email you had from Angela saying that the mother in Hungry Earth Cold Blood made her ashamed to be human. You listen to the 42 to Doomsday podcast, Angela. Aren't you already ashamed to be human? <laughs> Love the memories of the novelizations, guys. Keep up the great work. Personally, I can handle the shame so long as it's this good. Thank you, Doc. That's, that's really quite generous of him. Thank you so much for that. I think that Tar podcast has resonated with people of a certain age let's put it that way yeah it's definitely struck a struck a nerve uh, which is uh, well obviously you know you want to appeal to uh, the, the listeners and uh, I think uh, the target books were a big part of a certain generation of fans experiences and memories of the show so I'm glad that we've uh, We've we've uh, we've touched them in, in 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 that way. Now, Rob, I've got a confession to make. I was unfaithful to you over the weekend. I uh, appeared on another podcast. Really? Which podcast was that, Mark? I'm appearing on a future episode of the Blue Box podcast. Uh, I won't tell you what it is, but it was great fun. I was uh, part of a team that had Erica from the Verity podcast and also Andrew Smith, who wrote the season 18 story Full Circle. Andrew actually tweeted us after that he's been listening to our latest target novels podcast a great listen so thank you for that andrew well there's a stamp of approval from a great man thank you andrew that's very kind of you we've had a couple of emails come through as well rob first one's from david kitchen he says dear team 42 to doomsday congrats on a wonderful podcast on the target range it was a great walk down memory lane for me i distinctly remember the dalek evasion of earth being the first ever proper novel i ever read and being confused as hell that the story was different to the Dalek Invasion Earth 2150 AD movie. I agree with much of what you said, but for good books would have to add the John Peel Dalek story adaptions, and for poor books must nominate Eric Sayward's adaption of The Twin Dilemma, where he tries to write in a style of Douglas Adams and fails miserably, something he also tried when writing Slipback and also the novelization of Time and the Rani, which included a tip that the Tet Trap language was just English backwards. I have two questions I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Firstly, a number of McCoy adaptions, especially Ghostlight and to a lesser extent Battlefield, have been considered necessary to understand the TV serial. Do you think that this is valid? Secondly, with Gareth Roberts doing a great job novelizing the Douglas Adams stories, who would be your pick to write Resurrection and Revelation and finish the set? Keep up the great work. Regards, David Kitchen. I might just go back to his point about the John Peel story adaptions. Yes, I thought they were great, 
The only issue I had was the Power of the Dalek adaption where he put the prologue about the events at the end of the 10th planet and he changed all the dating to from 1986 to the 1990s. He had Sarah Jane Smith as a unit chronicler. He had all these characters in from Remembrance of the Daleks scavenging over the cyber ships. I didn't think that was necessarily uh, needed to be in there. In terms of time and the writing of the book, I just remember the words tumultuous buffeting, which I thought sounded like a nightclub from the 1990s. <laughs> His point about the McCoy adaptions, Rob, what do you think about those? There's just been this constant refrain over the years that uh, some of the latter McCoy stories are difficult to understand because of the you know the overriding and thus the tight editing. And especially Ghostlight. Ghostlight keeps it in for a bit of a bollocking because apparently the, the motivations of various characters are, are difficult to understand. Uh, I've never really bought into that. Um, maybe I've been seduced by the, you know, the, the wonderful visuals of Ghostlight and I haven't really had to engage with the story itself but I, I, I don't know that um, there's anything particularly wrong with the, the story as presented on the TV um, with the actual adaptations well I mean obviously the opportunity is there to drop back in um, elements of the script that had to be cut for timing reasons um, but also I, and I've got no problem with that and if it helps people's understanding of the actual serial itself well fantastic uh, there's no point being left in the in the dark about what you're watching and if the book can elucidate for you, fantastic. But I also, I mean, I find that the opportunity to uh, novelise a story clearly gives the writer the opportunity to expand on what was shown on the television. So that if that means that the storyline is, uh, is uh, explained a bit better, fair enough. If that allows for deeper and broader characterizations of the characters, uh, that's fantastic. If, there's, if you get a sense of the back history of the story of events, well, even better, because if you don't take that opportunity, essentially you're getting a script version of the story, and what's the point of doing that? You just you, you just might as well buy the script from a, from a, from, a, from a store that specialises in those sort of things. I particularly welcome the uh, the advent of the, the the broader adaptations of the McCoy era, that last you know era of uh, the Target books, and um, and that, that's why when we were discussing last uh, last episode the Target uh, uh, podcast, we sort of lamented the fact that there was. Um, there were no novelizations of, of the, you know, the modern series episodes. And I think that's a bit of a missed opportunity, A, in terms of you know, merchandising for the BBC, and B, uh, you know, allowing writers to flesh out their stories. Uh, I, think, I think any writer would, A, be happy to pocket the money, and B, also you know, to give the story its proper due as they visualised and, and, and viewed it at the time that they wrote it. With Ghostlight, it used to pee me off no end, people saying, if you don't understand the TV show, you have to read the book. As a general member of the public who doesn't understand the story on television, they're not necessarily going to seek out the book. And reading the book to understand what should have been quite clear on television, it doesn't satisfy me. And I think it's a bit of a cop-out excuse. The adaption of Ghostlight, it should have embellished the story, but not necessarily have to explain the whole thing, which couldn't obviously have been done properly on television. It was mainly down to timing constraints, wasn't it? Well, that's right. I don't understand. I would have thought that Ghostlight might have been the flagship story of that season and you'd give it as much uh, episode numbers or count to uh, to allow it to, to, to shine and then you'd, you know, you'd drop Battlefield back. But I suppose production team thought that four episodes with uh, the Brigadier outweighed any other consideration so what about david's second point regarding who would we pick to novelize resurrection and revelation well i suppose when you look at it uh, resurrection and revelation uh, of the daleks are in a sense military sf you've got you know uh, soldiers and mercenaries and, and fighting and war and, and that sort of thing going on in the background 
Uh, for those who like their military SF, uh, there's any number of uh, writers in that field at the moment who are incredibly popular. There's a David, uh, a gentleman named David Weber uh, who writes for Bay and Books. Uh, there's another fellow named Johnny Ringo who also writes for Bay and Books, and they are very, very popular, uh, especially amongst American readers, for their military SF. So, I mean, if you had a, uh, a wish list of writers, uh, I particularly, I don't think Johnny Ringo is actually a very good writer, <laughs> Uh, and Weber is only slightly better, but if you, in terms of matching writers to topics, you know you could go, you could definitely go with gentlemen like that. Uh, and uh, not only would you have Doctor Who fans purchasing it, but you would also be opening up the field to um, fans of those particular writers. And I don't necessarily know that there's a great deal of crossover between the two areas, but uh, that would be an opportunity to exploit that. The books were first mooted in the early 90s. Eric Sayward was originally going to write them, then he bowed out for some reason, and I believe they were going to get Gareth Roberts to do one of them, and Paul Leonard was going to do another one. I think maybe Gareth was doing Revelation and Paul Leonard was doing Resurrection, or the other way around. And they both had to give sample chapters to Sayward and say, what do you think? And he said, yes, we'll go ahead with it. But they actually never went ahead with it. In terms of who I would get to novelise them, certainly not Pip and Jane Baker. That's one thing. I'll be honest, I don't really read much hardcore sci-fi books anyway, so I'm probably not the best person to answer the question anyway. Well, I would have thought that Gareth Roberts writes with a certain whimsy that would be completely at odds with the material at hand. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Resurrection and Revelation are fairly gritty and grim. And you don't want a fellow who... uh, Well, I, I wouldn't think that a fellow who's got a lighter touch would necessarily be a right fit for that sort of job. No. But, um, Rob Sherman? Rob Sherman does a very great line in dark comedy or black comedy, possibly. I mean, he could certainly pick up on the absurdity, the dark, bleak absurdity of Revelation. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would, specifically for Resurrection, I would definitely go with someone who can write quick and dirty and fast-paced action and, 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 and go that way. There was a, there's a favourite uh, horror writer of mine, Sean Hudson from the 80s, who, who wrote a lot of military SF, um, sorry, not military SF, but a lot of military work set during the during World War II, who could, who could probably do it. Uh, there was also a fellow named Leo Kessler who wrote a lot of uh, World War II-inspired um, military fiction, but I think he might be dead. So, um, but <laughs> it's the sort of thing that he would be, would be, you know, would grab with both hands and run very quickly with. We got another letter there, Rob, before we go. Captain Hawkins uh, has sent us a, a missive. So uh, Captain Hawkins uh, says, Hello guys, just a note to say how much I enjoyed the Target Books episode. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, the novels were a big part of my enjoyment of the series, and it's true to say I'm one of the generation encouraged to read by Terence Dix. Thinking of the different titles brought back a heap of memories around finding, obtaining and reading the various titles during my younger years, and the excitement receiving a new unread book would bring. I can remember passing many a car trips with the novels. Indeed, my copies of The Dalek Invasion of Earth and Pyramids of Mars were bought to shut me up on a family holiday through the snowy mountains. Uh, Living in Australia, I was fortunate enough to see a a number of semi-regular Pertwee episodes. Repeated. But the three Doctors aside, I really only knew the first and second Doctors from the books, thanks to a helpful changing face of Doctor Who notations. Not seeing the black and white stories for years after, I'd read and reread the novels. Unfortunately, what were gripping adventures in print were sometimes let down by the TV productions. I collected all of them over the years, and I still occasionally spend an hour or two with the odd title for old time's sake. It was interesting rereading Enemy of the World and Web of Fear in the wake of last year's recoveries. I remember Ian Mater's use of the word bastard causing some consternation, although he did it again in The Invasion. 
My favourites of the early titles were probably Tomb of the Cybermen and Genesis of the Daleks. Although, as I got a bit older and more appreciative of the writing, it's hard to go past Malcolm Hulk's works. Later favourites were Fury from the Deep and the excellent Remembrance of the Daleks. Would that the bulk of the earlier novels weren't forced into a word count. The War Games is 120 pages. I ask you. I seem to recall Fury from the Deep was one of the first extra-length novels, which they used as an excuse to jack up the price. Anyway, a great listen and thanks for reminding me of the time when the TARDIS made a wheezing, groaning sound. I remember being outraged when Bidmead's novels described it as chuffing and adventures including an escape to danger. Thanks Captain Hawkins for that. Well as we said before there's a lot of great memories tied up with uh, with people's uh, you know, reading of the Tiger novels back when they were children and uh, we're glad that we managed to evoke that for you again. Before we go, last podcast we announced a competition which was to win a copy of Doctor Who The Ultimate Guide thanks to our friends at BBC on DVD. And we asked our listeners to send in a question for us to answer and the best one would win it. Now, I think Rob's jihad against that particular title has maybe put uh, some of you off. So what we've decided to do was to include not only Doctor Who, The Ultimate Guide, as recommended by Rob. I will not be silenced. But also a Blu-ray copy of the other favourite story of Rob, Time of the Doctor. Again, the rules are the same. Just send us in a question that uh, you would like us to answer. And if you could send your responses back to us, say, by the 28th of June, and the winner will win copies of those two particular titles as recommended by Rob and Impulse Gamer. So look forward to reading your entries soon. Now, what have we got planned for next podcast, Rob? Well, next podcast is part two of our merchandise uh, epic. Uh, We're going to be getting in uh, noted local Doctor Who fan, Aaron Challenger, who's the proprietor of Lobos Collectibles here in Melbourne. We'll be getting Aaron in to talk about uh, all things merchandising from a uh, uh, selling point of view. And uh, we'll see where that conversation takes us. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. I've been Tom Baker's Underpants. And I've been the Doctor Who Sponge. Uh, we'll catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to another instalment of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Mark and Rob. If you'd like to contact us, please do so via our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday, email us at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com, and find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. And until we meet again, may your Doctor Who be good Doctor Who.